0: we are studying this line in the Apostles' Creed in the Jesus section that He will come to judge the living and the dead now depending on what your theological eschatological point of view is we're talking either about the rapture or the second coming or the coming of the kingdom or the coming judgment or the day of the Lord there's a lot of ways to describe what we're talking about in biblical language the, the timetable is a bit confused in our minds we're going to talk a little more about that next week but when we hit this phrase we believe Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead we believe Jesus will return just set the judge of the living and the dead aside for a moment we believe Jesus will return we do believe that and all Christians do believe that But it's how that plays out practically that is kind of the source of divisions for Christians. But that's really next week's sermon, and I'll save that. Uh, We're now three weeks on this one phrase. I'm trying to slow way down because I know the end times are the things Christians love to talk about. And I know that it gets confusing. And I know you're watching things play out on the news every night that are heightening your awareness to end times to prophecy i know you're living in the midst of a global pandemic which obviously has ratcheted everything up for you Your your in spiritual antennae are are receiving all the signals and saying what does all of this data mean that's bombarding my life so i want to slow down a little bit here and i want to I want to see if we can unpack several different themes, and we have. So we talked about the rapture last week, and uh, it'll tie into next week's discussion as well. Is there one? Is there not one? Have we misinterpreted First Thessalonians chapter 4? And we really talked a lot about that la- last week, about whether the rapture is an exodus of the saved to heaven to live with Jesus for eternity. Or is that rapture, air quotes, passage, really about the dead in Christ shall rise and we which are alive and remain will also have a resurrection and we'll go to receive Jesus back to planet earth, which is what it's really talking about. Which is what it's really talking about. But nonetheless, the other passage that derails everyone is Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 6. When you get to these big theological discussions, if there were were 50 passages that said the same thing, there'd be no debate. It'd be a slam dunk, right? The controversies always come around one or two passages. Now that's the whole women's in ministry and leadership, it's only two passages in your Bible that have to be sorted out to understand the whole argument, okay? Okay. When we get to the eschatological stuff, the end time stuff that we're talking about, there are two main passages that really kind of get the dog chasing his tail, if you would. 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to deal with Revelation chapter 20 next week, but this week what I want to do is I want to deal with really how to read Revelation. People will say things to me like this, especially at a season like this. when when war is escalated and, you know, we see these flag-draped caskets and and our our own church members are passing due to the pandemic, it's not uncommon for me to field questions that will sound something like this. Pastor Bobby, this is it, isn't it? The coronavirus pandemic is the beginning of the end of the world, isn't it? I was reading about plagues over in the book of Revelation. This must be it. I'm watching what people are posting on Facebook. I'm seeing some clips on on YouTube. This must be it. Everyone, don't get the shot. Because the shot is the government trying to give you the mark of the beast. They're going to implant you with a nano microchip. Okay? This is what it sounds like. Now, it's easy to get caught up in the rhetoric... And you may wonder, well, why would Christians, why do? Why, it's Christians that react this way. Why do Christians react this way? Because what you believe is affecting your behavior. So we've been talking about for 13 weeks now. What you believe affects who you are, affects how you behave. And that's a good thing if your beliefs are right, okay? And so this type of thinking comes out of, it's a reaction to the position, to the theological position, that the book of Revelation is a secret code that needs to be decoded, and if you can decode it, it points to exact, specific future events that we can chronicle on a calendar, on a timeline, and watch all of these events play out. If that is your theological position, then that's why you will react that way. Uh, Our bigger view, I don't know how to say this because I don't know what your view is, but my view is that the Revelation, the book of Revelation, is filled with images and symbols uh, that give us a set of lenses to look through. And when we look through these symbols and these events and these images, it helps us to correctly see our world no matter what generation you're living in in other words the book of revelation gives you a set of glasses to put on so that if you're living in the first century you can make sense of your world under Nero or Domitian it gives you a set of glasses to put on so that if you're a a Christian living in the Crusades, you can make some sense of what's happening in the world it gives you a set of glasses to put on so that if you're living through world war one or world war two or if you're living through a pandemic in 2000. 21. You can put on a pair of Revelation glasses and you can see the world correctly through the lenses of Scripture and you can make sense of the world you live in. You can make sense of what's happening to your life. Pandemics, death, warfare, famine. These are the realities of the world in which you live in. Jesus even said on one occasion you will see You'll hear of wars and rumors of war and all of this stuff. This is not the end. You say, why? Because there's just another day on planet Earth. Just another day on planet Earth. You say, yes, but it's just another Spanish flu on planet Earth. You say, but it's just another bubonic plague on planet Earth. You say, yes, but war. It's just another of millions of wars. You say, what's going on? Life On planet earth and when you get the right lenses on you'll see that death and warfare and famine and and injustice and all of the things you're seeing are are seen correctly through lenses that this world in which you live is in desperate need of renewal the world in which you live is filled with humans that are in desperate need of a resurrection of transformation you say, make it make sense for us, pastor. It doesn't make sense. The only thing that will make it make sense is the coming of Jesus Christ and make all things right. You live in a broken world. This is what the pandemic means. You live in a fallen world. It's broken. You say, what is all this? war? It's broken. You say, but people are broken. We are cracked, fractured icons of God. We were made in the image of God, and now we are broken. And sin is what broke us. And sin is what broke this world. Yes, but the storms and the volcanoes and the earthquakes and the hurricane, the world is broken. It's broken. And every time you see this, if you have the right lenses on, what you're seeing is confirmation that the Bible has told you the truth. When God came to Adam and Eve and said, oh, you don't know what you've done, they would had no clue. And we wouldn't have either had we been in their, they didn't have shoes, but if we'd been in their shoes, okay, we wouldn't have either. And the whole point is, it's broken now. And you're seeing it as it really is. Brace yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, there is no literal mark of the beast. Now, I just want everybody to focus right here. There is... No literal mark of the beast. It is not a tattoo. It is not a barcode. It is not nanotechnology microchips, uh, trackers, RFID chips being inserted into you. The mark of the beast is not literal. It is symbolic language the author of the book of Revelation, is writing in the apocalyptic style and he's using images from his Bible to explain to you the end times or the time they're living in. He, whoever's right, John, is going back to his Bible, which is the Old Testament. It's the only Bible he had. And from his Bible... He's taking what he's seeing and he's reapplying it freshly in the first century and to the generations that will come, which is what every Bible writer did, by the way. So John is taking images from the Old Testament and he's writing in a specific style, apocalyptic style, and he's telling you about the, uh, a coming thing. The beast is a socioeconomic system of oppression and violence Personified. If I use the word personification, you all know what I'm talking about. It's a literary term that means you give attributes of something that's not human to a human. Personi- personify it. Personify it. Make this thing, this system, into a person, and now let's call it a he. Does that make sense? The Bible writer is using personification. To personify something called the beast, it is a socioeconomic system of oppression and violence being personified and taking the mark of the beast, of the personified system, is to recklessly and thoughtlessly participate and contribute to the socioeconomic system that produces violence and oppression. All right, I think we've got that. So John, writing the book of Revelation, is using images from his Old Testament to explain it to his people and to us. Now maybe they were a little more connected to Judaism than we are, but still Christians should be very connected to their Old Testament and understand the images when they see them. John is using images... ...from Israel's most famous prayer... ...listen carefully. John is using images... ...not from something obscure. John is using images from the most famous prayer in all of Judaism. So when people see the images that he's using... ...they knew instantly what he was talking about. We, 2,000 years later, are waiting to be implanted with a chip... ...because we're confused... John is using images from Israel's most famous prayer to develop this mark of the beast. <clears throat> the mark is the opposite of living for the Lord. say, what's the mark of the beast? It's the opposite of living for Jesus. If you were sold out for Jesus, that'd be one path. If you're just blindly following the world's socio then it's another path. Does that make sense? The mark of the beast is the opposite of living for King Jesus. He describes the mark of the beast as the opposite of the Shema, the most famous prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 6 of all of Judaism. Now let me explain. Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read the Shema to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... One, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Most famous prayer in all of Israel, right here. Six, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk to them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Here it comes. Here's the whole enchilada. Verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them where? Where? You know what the Shema, you know what the Word of God was supposed to be to Israel? It was supposed to be right there on their I know it like I know the back of my the back of my hand is your saying in English. I know the word of God because it's always before my eyes, the psalmists are saying. Now the Jews took this in a very literal way and they made little wooden boxes and they wrote the scripture out and put it in the little wooden boxes. It's called a phylactery. And they will bind them upon their arms and hands and tie them around their forehead and wear a little square box with the Scripture. Johnny, when we were in Israel, we went down to the Wailing Wall. We could see the people that are carrying this out literally. Well, it's not about hiding God's Word in their hearts. It's literally about strapping it to your forehead. Okay? That's their interpretation of how to carry this out. I'm not being critical; just their interpretation of how to carry this out. So what you're seeing is... John in the book of Revelation has said, if this scripture bound to your hand and your head represents a follower of God, completely, so if you were really sold out, you've got the scripture there, then somebody sold out to the world system would look like what? The inverse of the Shema. You would have the world on your forehead and the world on your, on your hand. It's the inverse of, Of what it means to be a follower of God. The mark of the beast is being described as loyalty to the world's socioeconomic system of oppression. And it is symbolized by a people who have the beast's mark on their hands and their foreheads. With their hearts, minds, and actions, they are showing a picture of allegiance to the world. It is the opposite of God's people being in full allegiance, having the word of God on their heads and written on their hearts and bound To their hands. There is no mark of the beast. Are we all clear? I don't know if I'm being too forceful now, Josh. You calm me down if I get too wound up. Okay, just say, do like this, and I'll know to tap the brakes. It's symbolic language. Let me ask you a question Are you followers of Jehovah God? You followers of Yahweh and of Jesus Christ? Then why don't you have His Word written on your forehead this morning? Why have none of you tattooed it on your right hand? And your answer would be, because, Pastor, that's not to be taken literally. If it is, we'll call the tattoo artist down here next Sunday. And we'll just tell him we need 200 appointments, one right after the other. And we'll just tattoo, what verse do y'all want to tattoo? We'll just tattoo something on everybody's forehead. Pick your favorite verse. Next week, we'll just tattoo it right there. So when you go to work Monday, there will be no doubt about that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Anybody game? You're like, no, that's to be taken as a symbol. It's not to be taken literally, Pastor. Don't lose your mind. Then why have you lost your mind about Revelation? It's the book that absolutely is symbolic. Does this make sense? What I'm trying to say to you this morning. The book of Revelation is written in the literary style of Apocalypse. Let me explain to you. I'll go slow. Written in the style of Apocalypse. It's a style. We get the word Apocalypse because it is the first word in the Greek manuscript of the book of Revelation. If you were to open the old Greek manuscript, the first word on the page would be Apocalypse. That's the first word. Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's actually apocalypsis, but let's talk about what it means. Apocalypse, apocalypsis, apocalypsis, apocalyptine, they're variants of the same word. It's a little tricky to define for you because the English language made a whole definition for apocalypse that never existed historically. This is tricky. So if you go to an English dictionary, which this is a screenshot from an English dictionary, you may see a definition that's unique to you, but not historical and not accurate. This is what you have now made the word apocalypse mean in modern America. Apocalypse, noun, the complete final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation, an event involving destruction or damage or an awesome or catastrophic scale. In other words, I got, I should have screenshot, I got two emails this week. You know, one's about like a a prophecy conference or one's about the end of the world or one's about, and they use the word apocalypse, you know. Are you going to be prepared for the coming apocalypse? Prepper stuff, Okay. Buy 900 ready-to-eat meals and 6,000 rounds of ammunition today, so you're ready for the coming apocalypse. Okay, apocalypse as being used in, in modern America, in the English language. that is the now definition of apocalypse. The problem is that's not the Bible definition. It's not the historic definition. It's not the way, well, not really what the word means. It's what Christians in America have twisted the word to mean because of their theological views and so many Christians influenced the culture of America that we now, the Christians, with their bad theology, made it mean something that it never meant historically so that it's now the English definition in a dictionary. How crazy is that? You say, well, how do you know it doesn't mean that, Pastor? Great, I'm glad you asked. This is the same dictionary picture. Look at the etymology section of the word. Just scroll down to the to the origin, from the Greek apocalypsis from "apokaluptin," meaning to uncover, or reveal. From "apo" un, "kaluptin" cover to uncover, to take the lid off, is what the word means to uncover, to reveal. So, apocalypse when you use it in a sentence this week, or a coworker does. They're like, well, this is the apocalypse isn't it, with what's happening. They mean the end of the world. But that's not what it means. It means to uncover something. Let me see if I can explain. Susan and I were a few months ago at a real nice French restaurant. And, uh, you know, it's one of those that takes like three hours to eat your meal. You know, we were going through the courses. And uh, I'm talking, you know, candles and white linen tablecloths and, you know, And so now they clear off, you know, you're going through like silverware like crazy. You know, you just like nine forks and all this kind of stuff. And so they clear everything again, and they're about to bring the main course. And when they, instead of just our waiter showing up at the table, a whole team of waiters showed up at the table for the main course. And when they carried the main course out, they had these big, they had our plates on platters and these big silver domes on top of them. You know what I'm talking about? With a handle on top of the dome. And they brought the food out to the table, and they laid it all down on the table. And then waiters all started grabbing the tops of these dishes, and they looked at the head waiter, and he gave the signal. And all of a sudden, with theatrical flourish, the lids all came off like this, and it was like, you know, it, it was a big, it was a big reveal, a big uncovering. It was an apocalypse to take the lid off, to reveal, to uncover. It was the big reveal. I just, Susan, we, we had an apocalypse at our nice little table for two. And an apocalypse is an uncovering of something, a revealing of something, and after which you experience it, your life will go a different direction. You'll never be the same. Food wasn't quite that good, but okay, I'll go with that. I'll go with that, all right? something was uncovered and because i witnessed it i'm a changed person i'll never be the same now you're getting the real definition of what an apocalypse is all about now pop culture made apocalypse about the final destruction of the world but that is not really what the word's about the definition is never used that way in the bible so i want to show you that so you're don't think i'm making all this stuff up this morning okay Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Here's how Jesus used the word apocalypse. At that time, Jesus said, Matthew 11:25, 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things. Now, hidden is going to be the opposite of apocalypse, just prepping you, okay? And these things are the things about who Jesus really is. He's not just a peasant from Nazareth. King of kings and Lord of lords. And people are realizing it now. So watch how this reads. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you have apocalypsed them to little children. And how is it translated? Lord. What's he saying? He's saying ordinary people, little children, simple people, peasants from the village are having a big reveal and their lives will never be the same because what's being uncovered to them is I'm not a peasant carpenter from Nazareth, I am the son of Almighty God, I'm the Savior of the world and their lives will never be the same. Father, I praise you because you have hidden the opposite of apocalypse, hidden these things from the wise and the learned, Pharisees, scribes, whoever, and you have... Law uncovered it to the peasant people and to the simple people, and they are seeing who I really am. Verse uh, 26, Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to apocalypse him, reveal him both of those instances are the exact same word in your bible it does not mean jesus is saying i'm going to blow up the world i've come to an apocalypse nuke the world it's not what he's saying he's saying something's being revealed in people's lives who are witnessing it will never be the same they're going to be transformed they can't go back now they'll never see the world the same they'll never see me the same because Father in heaven is revealing, he's uncovering, he's apocalypsing something to their hearts. These are things about Jesus' true identity. And his mission, he's saying, his mission was to apocalypse himself to the world. To unveil, to reveal, to take the lid off. To say, I'm, this is who I really am. And your lives will never be the same. Now we're talking about apocalypse because the book of Revelation... Apocalypse is the first word. It's known as an apocalypse. So this is how we get the title to the book. The book of the revelation. The book of the unlitting. The book of the uncovering. The book of the big reveal. What's it revealing? It's revealing to us living down here the way things really are. Up there and down here. So that when we see the way things really are, our lives will never be the same. Paul also had an apocalypse. So you'll know it's not the end of the world. Let me read it for you. An uncovering, an encounter that changed his life forever. He mentions his encounter in lots of his writings, but let me go to Galatians chapter 1 verse 11. Here's what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, Rather, I received it by apocalypse from Jesus Christ. How's it translated? Revelation, a revealing. In other words, Jesus revealed it to me, the gospel that I preach. Now, he later went to Jerusalem and laid his gospel there, and Peter and John, and and they realized there are gospels all, they all have the same thing from Jesus, okay? But he's saying, something was revealed to me in my life was never the same. Well, that encounter's over in the book of Acts, where Paul gives his testimony. He's going to Damascus to arrest Christians. He thinks he's a good follower of God by killing people who follow Jesus. He thinks that Judaism is the answer and Jesus is the problem. Okay? And he's killing anybody who follows Jesus. They've already killed Jesus and gotten him out of the way. And now we're going to get the rest of his followers. And that's where Paul's life was going. He was following that way, that path. But then he encountered. Jesus Christ he had an apocalypse an uncovering a revealing of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he was transformed he would never be the same after that meeting Now there's a great example of apocalypse you see it the wrong way law now you see it the right way and now your life takes a different course and different actions Now Paul allowed him to see the apocalypse allowed him to see Jesus clearly And Paul realized, I'm on the wrong side of this thing. I'm on the wrong side. I thought I was doing God a favor. I am actually persecuting Jesus Christ and his church. Listen, good theology changes how you see things. And it will not be uncommon for all of you in your lifetime to have a moment where you're like, Oh my goodness, I was wrong about something I really thought was right. But I'm not right. And I need to make a big course correction. Does that make sense? You should have those experiences in your life. If you don't, you're probably not growing. You're probably going to stay parked in some bad place. Many of our religious errors and divisions are results. Listen carefully again. Now refocus again. Many of our religious errors and divisions are results of not being taught how to read the Bible. I know I was here last week. I'm coming back and I'm going to come back several times. We've not been taught how to read the Bible and it's causing problems. Our theology will fall into error when we confuse the symbols with the realities. I'm going to let you marinate on this a minute. Because we've not been taught how to read the Bible, we have to be very careful. We're going to go into theological error if we confuse the symbol... With the reality. All right, now I think I can make this plain. So let me see if I can show you what this actually looks like in the Bible. How how the symbol gets all messed up, okay? Stay with me now. I'm going to take you back 1440 B.C., 1400 years before Jesus Christ. Moses, the Exodus, and the children of Israel. Let me start reading from Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. We're in the Exodus now. So we're traveling with all the the Israelites in the wilderness. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And the snakes bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've sinned. Oh no. Uh, uh, please, we, we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the Lord. Uh, sorry, for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a snake, and I want you to put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at the snake on the pole and live. So Moses, they took metal, bronze, took a bronze metal and made a snake and put it on the pole. And when anyone was bitten by the snake and they looked at the bronze snake, they were healed, they lived. You know this story, right? If you've been in Sunday school or you've read John chapter 3, you know this story. That snake on the pole often is pictured as a winged snake from these ancient texts. Which is why when you pass a hospital or you see an ambulance go by, that is the symbol that will be on the side of the vehicle today. Even now, 3,000 years later, it is the international symbol of healing. Okay? That sign. You see, if you're like, I was bit by a rattlesnake in my backyard, and you're trying to find a place to go, if you see that symbol, go, go, and there will be a place somebody can help you in that place. That's kind of the, the take on that. All right, now let me fast forward the story 1,500 years to Jesus Christ. During the days of Jesus, there was a learned man named Nicodemus. Anybody watching The Chosen? It's a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. And he's wanting to talk to Jesus about who he really is. He needs a big reveal. He needs an apocalypse. He's trying to talk to Jesus about who he really is and what it all means. Jesus cuts right to the chase and starts saying, listen, listen, just, you must be born again, Nicodemus. And they start this conversation about what it means to be born again. Jesus used the story from Numbers to talk to Nicodemus about salvation. You remember? Let me read it for you. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? That's Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. When he wants to speak in royal we or third person, he speaks in son of man language. Does that make sense? If Jesus ever says, the son of man has come, he's talking about himself, okay? So listen to what's being said. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes on him may have eternal life in him. That's John three fifteen. Does anybody know the next verse? Yeah. So you see where we're at? The as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. i talking about the cross. He's talking about I'm gonna die on the cross for your sins, and when you see it, you'll know I'm the guy. Law, big reveal, your life will forever be changed. Does that everybody make sense? Jesus is referring back to the story of Moses. So what does the serpent on the pole? represent. Let me read it to you. As Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Listen, that serpent on the pole represents salvation by God through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? All right, now, you need that background. We're coming back to this. You need that background. The snake story happened at 1400 B.C., Obviously, at about 30, Jesus is explaining it to Nicodemus, 30 A.D. Let me go right in the middle of that timetable, somewhere about 732 B.C., right in the middle of that story, right, right in the middle of your Old Testament over there, about 700 years after the Exodus, okay, Israel's now a nation, they've got kings, and, and they're going through their cycle of one king rises, another dies, another one born, okay, they're going through that cycle. Let me read from Second Kings chapter 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz is out. Hezekiah is in. He was 25 years old when he became king. He was a young man when he came to the throne. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Good king, and that's a very, very rare, by the way. Good king, very, very rare. He did good like David. Okay, what good did he do? Well, the writer of Kings goes to give you some examples of the good works of, of King uh, Hezekiah. Verse 4, he removed the high places. Now, that was the mountaintop idol's Worship places out in the groves in the forests of Baal and Ashtaroth, Where they went up on the mountains in the high places in the groves. And they worshipped the idols. What did good King Hezekiah do? He smashed the high places. And smashed the sacred stones. And cut down the Asherah poles. Now watch this line. He broke in pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time. Let me say it another way. For the last 700 years, the Israelites did burn incense to it and they called it Nehushtan. The thing that was a picture of salvation through God's King, through God's Messiah, now was worshipped as an idol in Israel. Stay with me. Don't go away. The thing that was the symbol of God's salvation is now worshipped as an idol instead of God. Let me say it another way to you. The symbol was substituted for the reality. They're not worshipping God and praying to God. They're burning incense and they're worshipping a snake on a pole and calling that their god instead of symbolizing god they actually made it their god how messed up is that so a good godly king came to reign he said i can fix this he just smashed the thing to pieces somebody should have done that 700 years ago you know why because moses knew our propensity to idolatry you see what i'm saying it turned bad very quick and it stayed bad a long time Now, I'm going to beat up Israel, but I'm going to get to you in just a moment. You can see that Israel's theology, Israel's theology was broken because the symbol became the reality. And I bring this up as a lesson for you. Because the book of Revelation is the source for most of our end times debates. And the book of Revelation is highly symbolic because of its genre. Now, some of you are acting like you're bored. This ought to be riveting stuff right here. <laughs> genre. Let's talk about genre for a minute. Is this word that's familiar to you guys? Genre? I think it should be. The world of music is divided by genres. Okay? Now, all of my music is electronic now, and I assume yours is too. We've got one son who collects records, so his is vinyl. But for most of us, I think... Is anybody else a vinyl person in here? We got a few. Okay, everybody else, electronic, pretty much in the way you have buy and store and play your music. Okay, stream it, whatever. If you go to a music store, electronic, Apple Store, or wherever you're getting your music, the world of music is divided by genres. Whether it's brick and mortar, online, you go into any music store, through the browser or in person. And you will see sections in the music store divided by genre. Country, electronic, hip-hop, jazz, Latin pop, reggae, rock, metal, you know, R&B. The store is divided into genres. Each genre has themes and treatments and styles that make that genre unique. Now, let me just give you an example. We, we're very eclectic in our music taste at the Harold Place. And uh, uh, we were driving to work the other day and we were listening to George Strait's Greatest Hits. Okay? And Susan and I are having a conversation about this upcoming sermon about George, and we just begin to remark to each other, you know what it sounds like, if you didn't know better, George has a lot of exes, Dimples and Allison and Eileen, and he's always getting his heart broke or breaking somebody's heart, and in the songs he's always alone, and the cowboy rides away. And he's lost his woman, but at least he can still make the, the rodeo in Cheyenne. Just listen to it. It's designed to make you feel relationally sad. It's the genre. If you want to feel bluesy and drown your sorrows in your beer, then this is your genre. Country music is your thing if you want to feel relationally sad. In the genre, like if you say, hey, let's listen to something on the radio. If we go to country, I don't have to say, now, honey, this may make you a little sad. She already knows what the genre holds, okay? And so do you guys. You all all know what it holds. Uh, the country genre, we expect heartache, we expect loss. But it's just a Genre. I did some investigation. In the real world, George is happily married for 50 years now. He's a grandfather. His net worth is $300 million. He lives in a mansion outside of San Antonio, Texas. Contributes to charities greatly. And you don't have to feel sad for George because he's not really sad in reality. It's just a genre. Are we all together on that? George is probably a great guy. Probably a guy you'd like to sit down and eat some ribs with, you know? Nice guy, family man, loves his kids, loves his wife, all of that. All right, let's talk about literary genre. That's the setup for literary genre. It, you can find these classifications in any brick and mortar or any online bookstore. Just walk in. There will be a poetry section, a fiction section, a fantasy section, a sci-fi section, a mystery suspense section, a biography section, a nonfiction section. Does that make sense? Genre. Now, I don't spend much time personally in the sci-fi section. It's not my genre. I go right to the mystery suspense where all the action is for me. That's my genre. It's the genre I connect with. If I want to take a mental vacation and save the world and be James Bond and work for the CIA, I just go right to that genre and I can go on a vacation for several hundred pages. That makes sense? That's, that's my genre. Genre matters. I have never walked into a bookstore and just said, any, many, miney, mo, boom, okay, I'll take this home and read it. Oh, you're crazy. That'd be the biggest waste of money you ever did. You go to the genre you connect with or the genre you need to research or, or whatever. Genre matters. In poetry, for example, language is figurative. Language is not to be taken literally in poetry. The poetry genre expects that you know this. You should not take it literally. There are figures of speech, but the figures of speech are only symbolic. They may point to a reality. For example, if I were to write Susan a poem and I said, listen, when we next meet, I will kiss you with a thousand kisses. Let's think about what I'm really saying. Do I mean that I want her to count the kisses when we next meet? Am I saying that I intend to limit myself to only 1,000? You see, if this was in the Bible, that's what we'd be disputing right now. Does the 1,000 actually represent a number at all? Susan, when we next meet, I'll kiss you with it. Does the thousand mean anything like that? Does it have anything to do with a real number? Yes or no? No. It's poetic language conveying that I miss her so deeply that I can't wait to see her and put my arms around her and put my lips on hers. We're not going to be going, one, two, three. That is not what we're conveying. I'm conveying another reality that I long for her company and to be reunited. It has nothing to do with the number. It's poetic language just conveying that I miss her deeply and can't wait to see her again. The book of Revelation is written in an ancient Jewish genre called apocalyptic literature. It's its own genre. Now, there are other uh, books in the genre. For example, there's other extra-biblical, they're apocryphal books. They're not in your Bible, but they are written in the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature. They're the books of 1 Enoch, Fourth Ezra, and Second Baruch. If you want to go read those in the apocryphal books, you can get them all, Google them this afternoon and read them all, electronically online. They're written in similar style, Jewish apocalyptic as the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is not the only biblical book written in the Jewish apocalyptic style. Some other books in your Bible contain sections of apocalypse in them where the writer moves in and out of different styles and inserts apocalyptic into his writing. And the big, biggie would be Daniel. You already know, Daniel, I see beasts rise up out of the sea and I see horns and Sounds a lot like Revelation, doesn't it? He's writing fi He's writing Jewish apocalyptic. He's writing in the same genre and that's why it sounds identical to what John is writing over in the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, John's reading Daniel and getting inspired on how to write Jew. The same way that if you wanted to be a poet, you'd be studying Dickinson, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron, you'd be studying poets and letting them motivate you, and then you'd go lay down your prose. That makes sense? You go lay down your your lines. So John has read these other apocalyptics. There is apocalypse in Zechariah, in Joel, in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Revelation's not the only one, but it's the one that's got us all twisted up, okay? So let me tell you what is in the genre, what makes something Fit the genre of Jewish apocalyptic. I'll stack them on the screen. The apocalyptic genre has distinctives. If you're writing an apocalyptic, you are usually writing uh, under a pseudonym. The person who says is usually not the real person. They're usually pick someone and, and you, like Father Abraham or Moses or or some big figure from history. They write under a pseudonym, usually an ancient figure. Apocalypses are resistance literature. They are written to people who are under oppression, people who are being persecuted, people who are in despair, and those are the people who need apocalyptic literature uh, as an audience. Apocalypses usually refer to a heavenly intermediary who's going to show up and interpret the visions like in Revelation where the angel comes alongside John and begins to show him things and have a conversation with John. At one point, John bows down to worship. The angel's like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, get us all in trouble. Heavenly intermediary who's opening things and showing things and explaining things. Apocalypses contain dualism. Dualism of contrasting the present evil age you live in with the coming age of change when things are going to be made right apocalypses tend to be pessimistic about the possibility for positive change in our present context and what is needed is a radical divine intervention to uh, some power from god on the outside touching our world to overthrow god's enemies and make everything right divine intervention is a big part of apocalypse apocalypses are usually filled with symbolism revelation definitely ticks that box right Filled with symbolism. Apocalypses tend to be deterministic. Portraying an inescapable future that is set on God's timetable. And his calendar says this is going to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to happen. Now those are all characteristics of apocalyptic writing. An ancient Jewish genre. Much of which is in your Bible. But there's one big book of it there at the end of your Bible. The book of Revelation. Understanding genre. Genre affects how we interpret biblical writings. Now let's get back to where we live. Our tradition did not teach us how to read the Bible. Our tradition handed us a Bible and said, read it. So we did. We're good Christians. We read it. We obeyed what they told us to do, right? We read it. Listen carefully. But we read without distinction to genre. We did read it, but we read without distinction to genre. Let me explain. We read the book of Revelation in the same way we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are found in a library in the non-fiction biography shelf. Does that make sense? We read the book of Revelation, but we read it the same way we read the book of Acts, of the Apostles. Acts is found in the history section of the library. Ancient Middle East, there is the book of Acts. We read the Revelation from sci-fi, from Jewish apocalypse, as if it were history in advance And we pulled it out and said, oh look, here's a timetable of the end of the world. We didn't pay attention to genre. You wouldn't go to the sci-fi section of the library, pull out a book and read about Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and believe that that's the actual prophetic future of the galaxy. And if you do, we need to commit you. We need an intervention. It's Sci-fi, it's fantasy. You would not go to the library and read The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter and say this is real. It's fantasy. It's the literary genre. When we read without regard to literary genre, we have opened ourselves up to incredible misinterpretation and error. Listen, to make things a little more interesting in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the big middle section, that's chapter 6 through 16, in the big middle section, the guts of the whole book, the big section in the middle of the book of Revelation, is written in Jewish apocalyptic with the added twist of a literary style called recapitulation. Let me explain what recapitulation is, retelling. I don't know. The only thing I know to illustrate this to you is there's a modern movie out there called Knives Out. It's kind of an Agatha Christie murder mystery kind of movie. And if you haven't seen it, then go home and Netflix it or whatever this afternoon and you'll understand. And Knives Out, just give me a second, is, is James Bond, Was Craig in there, uh, Daniel Craig's the actor, so you can find this. He's a detective and he goes to this big english manner or something and there's somebody's died it's agatha christie kind of stuff and they're going to figure out who did the deed and the whole story is being told through one person's eyes and then all of a sudden the story shifts and now it's being played out through somebody else's eyes they're telling the same story now but from a different set of lenses does that make sense and then it stops and in a minute it switches characters and now you're seeing through another person's eyes does that make sense telling the same story from a different way, recapitulation. There's not three different giant sets of plagues and things. It's recapitulation. Three times. One, telling it. Tell it from the plagues of Moses. Tell it from, listen, the water to blood, the pestilence, the the the, sores, the sun not shining. It's the plagues. John is looking back to the book of Exodus and saying, It's going to be big. It's going to be big. It's going to be like, it's going to be like pardon. It's going to be like the Nile turned into blood. You understand what's happening? In symbolically, and now he's going to tell it from the prophets. Now he's going to tell it from the plagues again. Recapitulation. The book of Revelation is not a timeline, it has nothing to do with the timeline. The book of Revelation is not a secret code that you need to struggle to decode. The book of Revelation is written in the literary genre of Jewish apocalypse. That's what you need to know. It's highly symbolic. It uses symbols, numbers, images, beasts, and this and that, and heavenly visions to reveal what's really happening. Remember, reveals are the big thing here to reveal to the reader what's real, what's really going on. You guys all understand when you're watching the news, you really don't know what's going on, right? You don't know who's making decisions. You don't know whether a mask helps or not right now. Some of you don't know if a shot helps or not right now. Some of us don't know if washing our hands. I mean, you know, after so much back and forth, you get to where you just look and say, I don't know if the government's telling the truth. I don't know if the general's telling the truth. I don't know if the doctor's telling the truth. You just get into this position where you're just so many voices and you can't discern what's really happening. The book of Revelation was written for people under persecution who couldn't figure out what was really happening. So God pulls back the law apocalypse and shows them through this highly symbolic writing what's really going on. Now, that's really probably what you want to know, and now I'm out of time. What is really going on? Let me close it this way. Apocalyptic literature helps Christians see that Jesus Christ is really the one on the throne. That Satan is bound and limited in what he can do. A Jewish apocalyptic literature unveils everything so we can see our... See, it pulls back the curtain so we can see into heaven and we can see our loved ones there with the Lamb of God worshiping at the throne of God, singing praises. Listen, it gives us comfort. We're like, what's going on? What happened to Cliff? We can see Cliff standing at the throne, singing praises with our loved ones. That's what it does for us. When we're low, when we're persecuted, we can't make sense of it, he says, let me uncover what's really going on and pull you away to heaven for a moment. And while you're seeing all this chaos on planet Earth, Let me show you something of what's happening on the other side. They're gathered around the throne. They are singing praises to the Lamb. There's no doubt about who's in charge of the universe. That's what apocalyptic is written for. Apocalyptic literature helps us live right now, our lives, in resistance to evil. In resistance. You're like, I just don't know if I can carry on. Apocalyptic literature, when you read it, it's like, keep going. Keep going. Listen, some of your brothers and sisters are going to lay down their lives today on the other side of the world. Because they named the name of Jesus Christ. True fact. Apocalyptic literature is that thing where they say, okay, I see the souls of those under the altar who were beheaded for the cause of Christ. And those are my brothers and sisters, and I'll join them here in a few hours. And they're not done. They've not eradicated. They're going to get a resurrection. And I'll go and join them and worship together in heaven until the resurrection. And now I've got courage to go out here and defy the Taliban. And when they say, are you a Christian? I can look them in the eye and say, yes, I am. Do your worst. They did their worst to Jesus. And that's how he won. And that's how Christianity wins. You say, how do Christians get that courage? Apocalyptic literature. It helps us look at these symbols and things, and you read it, and you're like, what happens? I'll tell you what happens. Jesus comes out of heaven on a white horse and a sword out of his mouth. And, you see what I'm saying? It helps you say, okay, we do win. Because I want to be honest with you, this week it may feel like you're not winning. It may feel like you're not winning. And you may get discouraged. And so God put some writings in the Bible that you could read. They're a little bit mind-blowing. But they're symbolic writings, and they're trying to communicate to you, you do win. You win because Jesus already won, and you belong to Jesus, and none of his promises will ever fail. Now, I need to give you some homework, okay? I'll stop here if you'll do your homework. Fair? Okay, we've attached two links in version. If you go to the church's uh, app on your phone... There's now a resources tab down there. They're also in the resources tab. There's two videos. Three videos in there, okay? Two of them are Revelation Explanations, okay? Revelation Explanations. It's the Bible Project video on Revelation. They like to keep things short, so they're going to tell half of it, stop, tell the other half of it. You will probably have to watch this more than one time. It moves... I mean, it moves. They're going fast through the book of Revelation. But if you'll watch this a couple of times, you're going to sit back and say, ah, just like that, okay? The big reveal is happening for all of us, okay? Now, let me close with this. You saw the video last week, and I hope that touched your heart. It really touched mine. Here's what the the pastor said on the video last week. The Western church is asleep. Fall asleep to a lullaby that Satan is singing. I don't disagree with that. You say, well, what's the cure? The cure is we need an apocalypse. We need an apocalypse. You say, the end of the world? No, no that's not what the word means. We need to see what's really happening. We need to see that Jesus is in charge and that life, for all of us, is three score and ten, if by reason of strength, four score days. And that while we're here, we need to be living on a mission. And the greatest thing you can do with your life is worship Jesus Christ and make a disciple. Make a disciple. You say, how many? Let's start with one. Praise God. Once you make one, it'll be a little easier to make the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth. But listen, the greatest thing you can do is be on the mission of Jesus Christ. You worship him with your life. You worship them with how you live. You let good theology. You don't go to work tomorrow down in the dump like we're losing. You go to work tomorrow in victory, knowing that God's given you literature like this that says you win so that you're the optimist at work. And when everybody else says, let's go into hell in a handbasket... The Holy Spirit is working through you, ministering peace to everyone around you, calming and soothing and opening the door for them to receive the gospel. What we need, though, in the church of Jesus Christ is an apocalypse, something that will shift our paradigm, that we will see things as God sees things, and then we will never be the same. We will go a different way. We will live a different life because what we believe determines how we live. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.